Man, thank you for coming to, to spend time today and yesterday to spend time talking about discipleship in our home, by our home, and through our homes. And the trust that God will use this time. This, events like this with a lot packed into a short time can be um, overwhelming to assimilate all of the content and try to make sense of it. So I encourage you to don't let that happen and just look for something you can bring home from the workshop or something from the message and maybe keep some of the notes to maybe apply them to life afterward. But it's the nature of events like this to pack along in a short time. And so don't be frustrated by that and just say, Lord, give me something to bring home that can change my life and impact my family, and, and you'll do well. And 1977 was a good year. It was. Um, how many were not alive in 1977? Wow. It was an actual year on the calendar, uh, the end of the uh, 70s disco era type um, my wife and I actually went to a Bee Gees concert in Portland, Oregon in 1979. It was awesome. Uh, uh, I'll play the Unsaved Days card here, but it was an awesome concert. We heard Gordon Lightfoot in person at the U of M. Um, after writing The Wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald, it was awesome too. Um, and then we got saved and didn't did do that anymore. But anyway, those... <laughs> um, it was still awesome concerts though. Um, that was a year that a movie called Star Wars hit the theaters, okay? And um, now, in 1973, the writing for Star Wars began. In 1975, a second draft was written. The title of the movie was Adventures of the Star Killer, Episode 1, Star Wars. Aren't you glad they changed Luke's name? In March of 1976, when production began, he was still called Luke Starkiller. Our grandsons here, they love Star Wars games, so this is, this is important for them to know some of this history. On March 25th of 1977, in limited release, because they didn't know how it was going to go over, in fewer than 32 theaters, it hit the road. By June, it was a blockbuster. That's when we went to see it. We went to a theater, back then theaters, are you okay with hearing about this stuff? Um, theaters were huge. They weren't these multiplexes. You had one big one or two big ones. We went to the one with two big ones. We waited for an hour to get in. We went to see Jaws. They, they were called blockbusters because you literally waited around the block to get into the movie. How many didn't know that? Aren't you glad you came to men's retreat, right? <laughs> yes. And so we waited and... We just threw us into the back of our seat, and it didn't end till the Death Star was destroyed. We had only known Star Trek up until then. What a quantum leap in about everything, you know. <laughs> it was, this was serious science fiction that I loved since I was a kid. They had, a, they had an $8 to $11 million budget. They almost didn't make the movie because they pushed the limit because they had to go to 12. They made $775 million in its first run. And we saw it. It's now episode four. We just knew there was one, but we saw it in person. I'm old enough to remember Star Wars. But that's not why that year was important. Because in April of that year, Sandy and I said, I do. April 30th, 1977, I finished my four years at the University of Minnesota, and, and uh, we said, I do. And that transformed my life. We met at our church, went, went to the same school, started dating, 
Um, I had an orange pinto that I think was a real big attraction for her. Now, she tells me, she used to come around the blocks, her heart would flutter, you know. It was actually Calypso Coral was the color. I put mag wheels on it, you know, and it spit out blue smoke because the, the, the seals were bad. But it got good mileage to commute back and forth to school, and I put a little uh, wooden knob stick on it. I put a surfer big foot down in the thing. I had an FM stereo. I had lights on the front. It was really tricked out as much as I could do. That sold the deal. Actually, it didn't, but that, she loved that little car. And it never got rear-ended, by the way. We didn't learn about that till later. Ask your dad what we mean by that. I was married in a blue tux, robin's egg blue, with a royal blue cummerbund and um, white belts. This is, this is leisure suit era. This is uh, late 70s, pastels were king, you know? And in uh, all of that, we said, I do. When I met her, I just knew she was the one. I did. She was fun. She was cute. Now she's just stunning. She is. She's spiritually minded, though we were both unsaved. She didn't flirt with men. And she loved children. And I fell in love with her. We dated for two years, we engaged for one, we were married in 1977, April 3rd. Forty-five and a half years ago, God brought us together. He gave me a good wife. Because a good wife is from the Lord, and she's a virtuous woman by everything the Bible tells about. And I am, I married way above my pay grade, and God gave, and some, some of you did too. In fact, all of you did, I'll put it that way, right? <laughs> we don't deserve our wives, Right? We really don't. And um, her, she's a rare jewel. They're hard to find. And their price is far above rubies. And young men, Proverbs 31 was written for young men. It was. The things my mother taught me, said Solomon. The things that destroy kings, the things that are expected of them that others can do that he can't do. And here's a virtuous woman, go find one. By implication, what women should be, but it's what the kind of man the young man should, the young man should look for. And that began a 45-year journey of life together. And you have your story too. We're going to look today at a relationship with our wives, and that's going to be the subject of our topic today how we disciple them, how we invest in them, how we nurture them, the stewardship that God has given us to them. A little bit by way of review from last night, we're talking about, as for me and my house, Joshua said, discipleship at home. Discipleship, a disciple is a learner, a follower, here a follower of Christ who knows him, identifies with him, loves him, adheres to him, obeys him, serves him, and makes disciples. We're to go after them and then baptize them and then teach them and this is where it comes in where wise. We're supposed to teach them and grow them so they can be all that God wants them to be. So what do we mean by house? My house, we'll expand on that this morning. We have to understand creation. You fill that in in your you have sermon notes in the middle of your books. You have to understand creation. God designed the family. God created all things, created mankind, humankind, not man and female kind, but mankind. God created them male and female, and we stand on that. It's being attacked today. 
So we have to go back to the beginning. He made them fail male and He blessed them. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. He gave them dominion over every living thing. He created marriage, the bond between a man and a woman for life. God created all that. And he said everything was very good. Marriage is not a social institution, though it does impact society. It's not just the best thing. It's a creation by God to produce generations of offspring and to build a culture. But then we have to understand the effect of the curse. Because not long after God brought them together and joined them as one man and woman to be husband and wife for, till they would die, came the curse where sin made everything difficult. We don't know how long it took, but I don't think it took too long. And they were tempted by the devil and not careful, not satisfied, not trusting God. Adam, not leading, Eve acting independently of him. They wanted more. They wanted to be like God and give in to the temptation and sinned. In a perfect environment with no impact, no parents to blame, no culture to blame, and that's in that culture of just them and God, they deliberately rebelled against him and defied him and sinned against the God that made them and gave them everything they needed. How horrendous is that? The results of that, he said, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. And so it began to have an effect on everything. There was guilt and blame shifting, uh, an attempt to make it right by the fig leaves. And of course, God said, if you eat of the fruit, you'll die. You not eat the fruit, you fix it with fig leaves. I think that became man's attempt at religion, attempt to make himself right with God without something dying for that. Hiding from God, a sense of fear, blame shifting, the propensity to find someone else to blame, and then the curse. We live in a fallen world, not the Jurassic Park fallen kingdom. We live in a fallen world. In fact, it's amazing the world is as nice as it is living in a fallen world. It's an amazing thing for the grace of God to live in a fallen world and have it so amazing. But it affected, it, it brought pain and hardship to them. It affected childbearing and child raising and pain they would bring forth children. It affected man's work and made Roundup necessary, right? It made work tedious and hard and sweat-driven. Work would never have been like that apart from the curse. So thanks, Adam, and we are his descendants. It made relationships in conflict that used to be in harmony. God made her to be his helper, him to be the leader, and laboring together to grow. And then it says that part of the curse that your desire will be for your husband. Yay! No, it's a curse. Desire doesn't mean godly. It means your desire will be to control him and to rule him. Like in Genesis chapter 4, the sin will desire for you. You will long to control your husband. You'll long to be where the pants in the family. You will be a conflict for leadership in the home. You want to usurp the role of the husband and, and turn that upside down so the conflict began. Then it says that he will rule over you. Yeah, a loving husband. No, the dictator, a tyrant, angry, mean, controlling. And the conflict began and made marriage and life difficult and separation from God, misery, suffering, and death for all of the human race since one ran brought sin into the world. The effect of the curse. 
And boy, that affected marriage. You have to understand what Christ did. Christ makes everything different. And, and so, in spite of, and you have creation, the curse, and Christ, creation and the fall, and that Christ is the redeemer of man, the redeemer of the earth one day. He makes everything different and doable and delightful in how God designed it to be. There's a promise of a redeemer in chapter 3 and verse 15. You know, the proto-evangelion, the first mention of the gospel, he promised us that a redeemer would come, a descendant of David eventually, who would, who would destroy the serpent. He would nip at his heels and he would crush his head. And that happened 2,000 years ago. Christ, the head of the serpent, and is redeemer of mankind. And so we have hope in him. The power of Christ to forgive sin and the power of Christ to live for him even the application of redemption to Adam and Eve through the giving of the coats of animal skin, because something had to die for sin to be forgiven. And so they represented a picture of what Christ would do thousands of years later. They, God provided these animals that had died in their place, and they accepted God's plan, and they clothed themselves and were then right with Him. It's been true ever since. And the plan that in our marriages, we ought to depend on Christ, and actually they're to reflect Him. And Ephesians chapter 5 is not merely, even primarily, about husbands and wife. It's about speaking of Christ in the church. He said, by the way, this is Christ in the church primarily, a relationship with Him. So everything revolves around Christ in our lives and our marriages. It requires, but to make this relevant for you, it requires a decision for Christ, devotion for Christ, and to make disciples for Him. If Christ's going to make any difference, it requires those three things. You have to decide for Him, be devoted to Him, and make disciples for Him. And do it in our homes. <laughs> Meaning my family, my kids, my wife, we're to lead them and disciple them. And that means at our home, your home ought to be a place where disciple happens to your family and people outside your family. Make that a place of discipling. Invite unsafe people to come to your house to go through a John state. Invite them for supper and, and make that a place where new believers are growing in the Lord. Make that a place that happens. But also through your house, your, your family become disciple-making family. Joshua, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want disciple-making children, grandchildren, and great can, even the children yet to be born to be disciple-makers. That's what God wants for us. So what does this mean for you? A little bit of review from last night. This, it means this is personal resolve about relationships, about responsibility of discipling. Discipling is all of the things mentioned here. I'll not review them again this morning. But discipleship essentially means committing myself to a person, teaching, investing, modeling, appealing for them to follow me as I follow Christ. You and I investing in a person, in this case, our wives. So let's look at the responsibility that we have to our wives today. We could go to Ephesians chapter 5, and Ephesians 5, and in 1 Peter 3, 7, you ought to, if you don't memorize them, at least immerse yourself into them and ask God to help you to make them real in your life. The template is there. Almost everything you need is there in condensed form in Ephesians chapter 5, in the greater context of that. And 1 Peter 3, 7, it ought to drive your life about how you interact with your wife. We are called to love them. I think that is the one thing and everything else just flows from that. There are multiple things that we do, but if you look at Colossians chapter 3, which is a kind of like a bullet point condensed version of Ephesians 5, he lists husband this and kids do this and hu husbands love them. 
And don't be bitter against them. The one thing it says, you need to love them. That's the, we're kind of slow, and we can't handle stuff. So he gives us one verse in 1 Peter 3, and one thing which is love our wives. He says, love them. Love them sacrificially, like Christ loved the church, which means we give ourselves to them. We give them our time. We give up things for them. We bear the cost of what it takes to organize a family. We love them, and we give ourselves to them like Christ did the church. And that means we sanctify them through the washing of the water of the Word, so we become their teachers. You are your wife's primary teacher. Did you know that? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about order in the church and about women, if they have a question, ask their husbands at home. That's you. you ask your, they ask their husband first. Oh. Yeah? And so when my wife would have women come to her when we were pastoring and... <clears throat> She'd say, oh, we have this, we have this, we have this. She said, what does your husband think? I haven't talked with him. Go talk with him first. I want to talk to the pastor. You can't, I can't talk to my husband until you talk to your husband. And then they would come and say, I've talked to my husband first, and I still have a question. Then she would talk with him. So that, you are their teacher, and you are the sanctifier, and you are to nourish them. And the word nourish is the same word in Ephesians chapter 6, 4, to bring them up with children, to bring them to maturity. You're told to mature your wife. If your wife is immature, you're to bring her to maturity and grow her. So care for and feed her that she grows. And to cherish her. I love this metaphor because it's a chicken metaphor. How many didn't know that a capon's a chicken? Not that I'm a chicken, but a capon is a chicken, is a better cut of fowl. It is. It is. It's like the veal of chicken. The word here speaks of a mother hen protecting her chicks, keeping them warm, keeping them secure. Life is good and safe and protected. You never do anything to threaten her. Nothing to make her feel unsafe or insecure or vulnerable. You are her cherisher. She'd always feel safe, always secure. It implies affection and closeness. Next level before intimacy is affection. It implies hugging and, and caring, but it provides you to be her response for her purity, her maturity, and her security. But to never feel unsafe around you. And you love her by doing those things. And we are to, by implication, lead her. Now, it doesn't say husbands lead your wives. <laughs> Uh, he says, love them. But you are the head of your wife, so by implication, we are to be the leader, the head of the family, that provide direction for our home. And then we have to step up to the plate. It's a hard thing to do, but God is expecting us to be the leader. Now, the, the curse makes that difficult because our wives might want to be that, and sometimes in our absence, they will assume that role. And sometimes hard for them to give it up. And so we lead them, and then we leave our family for them. You leave your home and have a new one. And you leave and you cleave and you weave. I got that from Dr. Paul Tassel years ago, the ultimate pulpiteer and uh, alliterator. It works. And the two become one. No longer two, but one, united. So we leave, we cleave, and we weave two wives into, into one, and we, so we, are, we leave. And then we listen to them. 
We're heirs together of the grace of life, submitting yourself one to another, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Before he talks about husbands and wife, we submit ourselves to one another because the Spirit directs us to do that. Yield to the Spirit of God, produce a submissive spirit, so we submit ourselves, and that means we listen to them. We're heirs together of the grace of life, so we listen to them. We value what they have to say, and then we let her know that you value her. It's honoring her. It's your job to lift her up and to praise her for what she does. In Proverbs 31, it's all the mom caring for the home and the hard work that that is, the strength that requires to clothe them, to feed them, to bring them interesting food from afar, make sure she can stare at the cold and say, I dare this snowstorm to come. That's my rendition of that. The kids are clothed and they're warm. They can handle nine below for five minutes, but at least they can handle the cold. And our job, it says the husband safely trusts in her. Our job is to trust her, provide for her, and praise her. Her husband should praise her because she doesn't get much from anybody else. But she's at home with younger kids especially and all the things that it takes to care for a home. We couldn't do what they do. And they get no recognition for that from anyone but you. And the kids are fed, and they're clothed, and they're cared for, and they're taught, and they're disciplined, corrected when we're out and we come back. But we have to praise them for that. They'll get it from nowhere else. And so our job is to provide and to praise them and, and let her know you value her. Never get, I've never had a wife say, could you tell my husband to stop telling me he loves me? I'm so tired of that. Every text, I love you. I, would you make him stop, please? I've never had a woman tell me that. And it may not be every single time, but it's pretty much every single time that we text. It finishes with, I love you. I want her to know that today is no different than yesterday. And over time, it eventually grows. I love you so much. With all little heart emojis and heart in the eyeball things and little images things and all this thing. We still do that. And you can too. So you honor her. You let her know. And then you share your life with her. This is what it teaches. Dwell with them in an understanding way. You share your life with them. That's what she thought you meant when you said, I do. To share your life with them and not just provide the bills to be paid, but you share your life with her. We understand and do that in an understanding way and a gentle way because she's the weaker, weaker vessel and easily broken by the strength we can bring. So be careful because they're fragile and easily broken. That's what we know from passage we understand. It's all familiar. I hope it maybe helps you kind of piece it together. Make this a template for you as God would help it. And then this is a good review. And you're going, that's a lot to work on. Yeah. We'd have a whole series on this. I've done them. Wow, that's a lot of work. Yep. That's why we spend 12 weeks with newly couples to prepare them for marriage. We spend 12 weeks with them. This is serious business. Sin makes it difficult. Two sinners in one family providing direction for children. How is that going to fly? <laughs> There's a book written with sinners say, I do. No better way to say it. Only by the grace of God can Christ help us to conquer that. So we need to know the Word of God. We need to know Christ and walk with Him. And safe, spirit-filled men can do this. All the leading up to Ephesians 5 was Craig did a good job of that yesterday. Is safe, spirit-filled men can be men that do this. In this group, we would have men that are currently married. 
at various stages of married life. Some of you may be hopefully married someday. Some of you, it's not even on your radar. I mean, they've got little younger kids here. They're going, I don't even like girls, let alone my sister. Can't even imagine being married. That's for mom and dad, for grandma and papa, but not me. That could change over time. And ahead for many of us. But it's never too early to learn what it means to be husband and a wife. Some of you may be content remaining single. God gave you the gift of singleness. That may be you. Some of the formerly married, either by death or divorce. But all of us have the duty to understand, to know, to defend, to teach what God says about husbands and wives and marriage. We are to counsel people. New believers need to know what God says about marriage. Uh, Older believers need to be strengthened. Our children need to know, those that hoping to be married, those currently married, all of us, we need to invest in them to defend and protect the institution that God created. So it's all, uh, it's all of us to do. Let's turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. That's our text for today. Malachi, chapter 2. Not a text we often read. It's um, one of the minor prophets, minor in length, not minor in significance, and it has an interesting, well, you'll see in just a moment, has an interesting treatise on marriage in, in the midst of this book. The word Malachi means my messenger. He was the last of the prophets to the restored, the restored remnant, okay, that had declined. The theme is the love of Jehovah, the sins of the people, and the day of the Lord. Many indictments about people who are not living for Christ and living in sin. One commentator said that Malachi gives the moral judgment of God and the remnant restored under Ezra and Nehemiah. God had established his house among them, but their worship was formal and insincere, and they were declining. It's like post-revival void. All the great awakenings had a post-revival decline. Every one of them, they left a void. The burned-over district in New York gave rise to uh, Mormonism. It happens a lot. It happened here. So Malachi addresses this decline following a restored remnant and addresses some sins to his own people. Written over 2,400 years ago, still relevant because all the Word of God is profitable. So let's pull some things from this today. So number one, here's the outline. Number one, God addressed the culture of the day. Let's look at Malachi chapter 2 and read our text today, Malachi chapter 2. And we'll begin reading, let's see, beginning in verse 13. And this is another thing. It already mentioned it several ago. Again, yep, again, this is another thing. You do. You cover the altar of the Lord with your tears. I mean, the wives you put away are weeping at my altar, and you caused that. You sent them away, you put them away, and they're weeping for me, and you've covered my altar with the tears of your wives you've put away with weeping and with groaning. They weren't weeping and groaning, but their wives were. Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, what is going on? For what reason? They had no clue. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously or faithlessly, deceitfully through, though she is your companion, underline that word, and your wife by covenant, underline that word. 
But not one, not one, not even one person has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do? We'll talk about that in a minute. Who was the one? Well, he was seeking a godly offspring. And so take heed, be on guard to your spirit. Let no one deal trustfully or faithlessly against the wife of your youth. Because I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong or sin or deceit or treachery, says the Lord of hosts, so... Um, covers the garment with wrong. And so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal trustlessly with your wives. So God addressed the culture of the day. And even among God's people, divorce was common among the people of God. It ought not to have been. Even as an unsaved uh, young guy and coming into my teenage years, I, I had heard of people getting divorced. It wasn't as common as it is today. But I, I finally got close to home. One of my cousins got a divorce. But they were Catholic, so I expected that from them. I, I'm serious. That's how I thought. But then my Lutheran cousin got a divorce. I said, we don't do that. That was close to home. We know too many people whose marriages have fallen apart. We left Ketchikan to come to faith. We got saved there, but... In the process, a, a tugboat skipper in Ketchikan, had, uh, his wife was an MK, and they had decided to go to Bible College at Pillsbury in Minnesota. And they were good friends of ours. They left about the same time we did, and he was a big, rough, burly. He looked, he looked like Brutus in the Popeye thing. That's what he looked like. Gentle man, but that's... And so we drove up to Minneapolis, to Bloomington, to share the gospel with my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And on the way back, we stopped to see Tim and Mary and... Owatonna, and Tim was there, and I said, hi, Tim, and I said, where's Mary and the kids? Well, she's gone. I said, like, they said, no, she's gone. She left me. I was speechless. And a guy I learned a lot about marriage from, a Christian counselor, literally ran off with the secretary. Didn't validate what he'd told me. He just didn't apply it to him in own life. My daughter Amy, uh, several years out of faith, she said, Dad, a number of my classmates have always been married and divorced already. So among God's people, it's becoming too common. Today, there are constant and growing attacks on marriage, and you know them, you see them in the news. Um, characteristic of the last days are truce breakers, covenant breakers. That's what we're seeing in 2 Timothy 3. Abortion, casual sex, living together, pornography, LGBTQ, all this endless stuff. Attack the nuclear family, even made public. California wanted to outlaw parenting and give your kids to someone who didn't bear them. I mean, what, how bizarre is that? Uh, Self-fulfillment, convenience, worldly ambitions. I can make an argument that every cultural battle is an attack on the family, at least an attack on the Word of God and the implications of that. Now, our parents lived in a day when there was cultural pressure to stay married. That post-World War II culture, my mom and dad were not saved. They got saved. Sandy's mom and dad were not saved. Her, her dad got saved. But their marriages, we had good mothers and good dads, but there was some tension at times, and even the thought of leaving. But they didn't do it because of the kids. The culture said you, you, you do not 
pursue your own ambition to, to sacrifice your children. And so they stayed married. There's no pressure like that anymore to stay married. It's gone. This is why we spend 10 to 12 weeks preparing people for marriage. This is why we have a burden for the family, because of the culture of the day. Secondly, God condemned their treachery. That's the word here, treachery, faithlessness. It means to act deceitfully, covertly. He called it treacherous twice. It's a big deal. They were putting away their wives for every reason they could think of and sending them away, and they're weeping at the altar. And God condemned that. Was it really so bad? Well, look at the things that he says. It, yes, it was really that bad. He says in verse 15, but not one person has done so who has even a smidgen of the Spirit. That's my translation. And so no one who's any heart, any soul would ever think of doing this. So letter A, it says, so morally reprehensible that God would not accept their worship. <laughs> the thing we do can affect God's listening to us. You look at 1 Peter 3, 7, which is our version of that, that your prayers be not hindered. <laughs> they were so blinded that they did not understand why God would not hear them. Thirdly, he says, she was at one time the love of your life. He says, you did this to the wife of your youth. I was young one day. I was a kid, a teenager, a young adult, a young married. And I was madly in love. I couldn't, spend, I couldn't stand being without her. In a way, we could spend our life together. Every waking hour I could think of, I'd think of her. And she was the love of my life and is still today. And that was true of you when you said, I do. She was the wife of your youth, madly. She was one time the love of your life. You'd do anything for her, couldn't wait to spend every hour of the day if you could. You'd make sacrifices, you'd put up with them because she was the center of your world. He makes an appeal to the heart of the husband to remember back then. And then life kind of happened and sin kind of maybe took over and I don't hear that. Well, we had people say, I don't love them anymore. Well, you used to. And you've done things that have hurt that. So he says, she was the wife of your youth. Back in the day when you were younger, she was the love of your life. And he makes an appeal to the heart of the husband to go back and remember that. Letter D, this is so horrendous that this is something that no man who has even a remnant of reason or sense for right or wrong would do this. <laughs> Only fools would do this. God anticipates an objection. He said, when what did that one do is a reference likely to Abraham, his marrying Hagar, putting her away to seek a godly seed that would come through Israel instead of Ishmael. That was, that was being obedient to God in that dire situation, but not applicable to these men. The Pharisees wanted exceptions. They said, is it lawful to divorce a man's wife for any cause, for anything that they don't like? And he said, have you not read, what an indictment is that, have you not read your Bibles? <laughs> Creation from the beginning, it was not so. So why did Moses command to give one certificate? Well, because of the hardness of your heart. Moses allowed it, but God never intended that. Paul had additional instructions in 1 Corinthians 7. You ought to read them beyond the scope of this message to address all the nuances of that, but be careful to not, try not to justify what you're doing. Marriage is sacred, should be preserved at any cost we can give. I met a guy during my time at Faith working at UPS. His name was Jerry. I called him Jungle Jerry. He wanted to go to the Amazon 
you know, and started business. He was just a weird guy. He professed to be a believer. He said, you know, I think God told me that I should divorce my wife. God did not tell you that, I told him. <laughs> he did not. He was so delusional. He said, no, he did not. He would never tell you that. So it says God warns and exhorts them. Beware of losing your spirit. Beware of tarnishing and hindering the life spirit in you. And, of course, God hates divorce. There's always hardship, always pain, always a ripple effect. Sometimes we've overreacted to that. And there was one church in our fellowship that, that since closed, which it should have, you couldn't be a member if you were divorced. What in the world is that about? And God gives grace and forgiveness, restoration, if you've experienced divorce and abandonment. It's rare, but God can provide redemption in all of that. We've seen people with divorced marriages come to Christ and be born again and redeemed. But it always hurts. To be joined together is like my like this table, like my father-in-law would take a piece of wood and run it through a joiner. And with his biscuits, he would carve it and put glue and clamps, and they would be joined together. And if you tried to break, they would never break on the seam. Tried that before? Because they're now one. They break everywhere but the seam because the seam is the strongest part. So forever, what reason, there's a hardship and pain and everyone gets hurt. And God can provide grace and forgiveness and restoration but he says, you will cover your garment with sin, meaning this is soil on your garment you can't get out. I carry tide sticks everywhere. They're, they're, they're like magic. So you, ever, you need to get them. Buy a three-pack, keep one in your, your car, you know, one at home, and you, get, you, 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 dribble, you dribble ice cream, and it gets here just hypothetically, you know? And, the tie stick, and it's gone. He said, no, the stain doesn't go away. And so it's a big deal. So he condemned it. But in the midst of this, God provides some corrective instruction and some wonderful nuggets of truth that tie things together about the nature of marriage to be instructive. And I want to focus on that in the time that we have left. We're going to have to move along quickly, and that's my fault, not yours. But bear with me here. Marriage is a covenant relationship. He says, the wife of your covenant, a covenant relationship. A covenant is a compact, it is an agreement, it is a union of two that are no longer two but one. We're to leave and to cleave and to weave two lives into one where male and female was not just a good idea, but God designed it to be bound together for life. And bound means bound, not in a bad way, but it's a type of binding that is good. And let no man separate what God has joined together. That implies a watchfulness, a godly resolve against Satan and all of his minions. Could be another person, could be the pressures of the world, could be your own church. They like to divide and conquer because they're selfish sinners. And they'll pit you against each other. You can't let them do that. Could be hobbies or other interests or work of ministry can result in a separation. And I pastored in Carroll for 23-plus years. Um, a young pastor came to pastor a local church, and 
he had been taught that you, you, you give your life, you serve Jesus as a sacrifice, and, and that was good, but he overdid it. He was, like an emergent, he was like in a hospital that's just an emergency room. Everything was an emergency. Everything's not an emergency with people. Even their life has been dysfunctional for years, it, may, it maybe could wait till Monday. But he was always on call and always leaving home, and your family will not understand that. His wife was about to leave him. So I told him, you need to stop doing that and tell people when it's not an emergency that can wait and prioritize your family. You can serve Jesus with passion without destroying your family. You can do that, but you have to tell them no, and this can wait. And so he quit his ministry and quit the ministry, but he salvaged his family, but it was under attack. But a marriage is based on, established on promises that we make. A covenant is based on vows and promises that we make establishes the covenant. Now, these are serious promises. These are, you don't have it here, but they're voluntary promises. No one put a literal gun to your head and said, oh, you need to marry her. I hope not. Of your own free will, own volition, you said, I love her, I'm going to do this, and I want to do it of my own accord. But they are serious promises, sacred promises. And it says here that God was a witness when you said, I do. He was not only joining you, he was there. And he's everywhere, but he was there at your wedding, and he watched and witnessed when you said that. Now, you have witnesses called guests, and you need to feed them well and make them welcome and all the stuff, but God was the witness. I remember when you said that, and I thought you meant that, and he joined it together. And so he says, God was a witness, and they'd forgotten that. They're mutual promises. You make promises to one another. You promises, which implies mutual obligations to love, to care, to protect, to keep yourself only until death separates whatever happens in between. So we call them unconditional promises. And this is the things like better for worse, sickness or health, richer for poorer. We couldn't imagine things being worse, couldn't imagine them being in health. We can imagine being poor because we probably were poor. But the rest, life was good. But it can have worse and it can have bad health and it can have poorer. And basically, whatever happens, you will love her. Life doesn't affect that. That's what you said, unconditional. Whatever happens, we're good. None of that affects my loving and caring for my wife. I am immune to that by the grace of God. And so the unconditional promises. When we were married, we were both unsaved. They didn't happen until six years later. But we understood by the grace of God what marriage was. It was a big deal. We took it seriously. And Sandy's friends, it was the late 70s and the culture was beginning to kind of fall apart and attack marriage, and they said, how do you know it's going to last? You know what she told them? She said, divorce is not an option for us. Whoa. And she said it probably like that. Number two is the decision we've made to spend a life together. We're going to work at it. It's pretty good. And thirdly, she said, we're going to walk together through life and share it together, and it's not going to have any effect on us. That's why I married her. Nobody else in her class was saying that. But a marriage were companions, the second thing. I want to spend the rest of our time here in the 10 minutes that we have left. We are companions for life. This is part of the 
the oneness, the binding together, but here he says your companion and your wife by covenant. And this is the Old Testament version of 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says, dwell with your wife in an understanding way, share your life with her. The root idea here means to join, to knit together like fabric. I'm glad Dean didn't wear his, or he has a shirt kind of like this. We're kind of twins a couple years ago. I could have bought the picture, but that'd be embarrassing. Yeah. But fabric is weaved together. It speaks of uh, like strands of a rope and woven together. It speaks to be coupled. That's why they call us a couple, because we're coupled. Um, like train cars. Like, you know, it used to say, a husband and wife should never put up wallpaper together. It's not true. It's hook up a camper together. That's the big test. Now, I know of experience. We can do wallpaper all day, but campers, the coupling, men and women signal things differently. You know, like this and like this and over there. Uh, those were not my finest moments. I ask forgiveness about every single time. And I've gotten past that by the grace of God. Coupling a trailer. And she prays every time we do it. Pray without ceasing, right? I'm serious. And when she's done, she just jumps and put two thumbs in the air. And I miss that when I do it myself. I don't have all that. And so we are coupled together for life. And I thank God He allowed us to understand that even in our unsaved days. So what could this look like for you and I in the eight minutes that we have left? And this is, this is my experience speaking, some Bible truth speaking here. What does this look like in being companions for life? Well, first of all, spend time together. Now, you get, but spend time together. Simple things, activities, talking, not always fixing stuff when you talk. Men are fixers, they're doers. When my relation, like talking for the sake of talking to build a relationship, so get used to it. You can learn to enjoy just talking for the sake of talking. Don't ask them, what are you trying to fix? That's not the point. And so you talk about stuff. We bicycle together, we camp together, we kayak together, we go shopping together, furniture shopping together. You can learn to learn, like the things that she likes. You can learn to like watching Anne of Green Gables. That's good stuff. Right? That's my son I'm talking to, right? <laughs> yeah, he actually went to PEI and saw the Green Gables house. It was actually kind of cool. You can enjoy that. You can enjoy walking into Hy-Vee and they put all this home decor stuff when you enter the store. Have you noticed that? Why do they do that? Because women are drawn to that and guys walk right by and we go in and now I look at the stuff, the little Ankeny sign with all the coordinates. We actually have one. And they have now like decorative pillows and we walk in and she says, I like that pillow. I said, okay, let's get it. The wise husband said that the dumb husband says, we don't need more pillows. We have one or one set, you've heard of seasonal pillows, right? You've heard me speak before, right? Seasonal everything. What's the problem with that? Otherwise, where we live, it would look like a concrete bunker. We're glad that they like tapestries. Spend time together. 
You may need to put it on the calendar. You may need to be, be, be spontaneous. We guard with our life our three weeks of camping together, two in the summer, one in the fall. We guard them with our life. That's for us and our kids when they happen to come. Number two, raise your kids together. She used to care for the home, Proverbs 31. She cares for the home with the woman of strength. She guides the house. Paul said to Timothy, she guides the house. She's the benevolent dictator. The word is despot there. She's the benevolent dictator. It's her home. It's her house. She used to be a worker at home, and all the women encourage them to be a worker at home because they need encouragement to do that. So we know that, but fathers are supposed to bring up their children in Ephesians chapter 4. And fathers led by us, would could be translated parents, so we're in it together. So we don't need absent fathers and passive fathers and preoccupied fathers and plug-and-play fathers. We need guys active in their family raising kids together. Number three, share your struggles together. I got this from Dean Taylor at Midwinter Couples Retreat. You need to sign up. It's going to probably be October before you sign up up. It packs out quick. I encourage you to come. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 talks about two are better than one. If one falls, the other one can pick them up. If you're cold, they can make you warm. If you're attacked, they can help defend you. The threefold core is a great illustration of we share our struggles together because one can pick the other one up. And I have fallen several times in my life, not just hunting, not just skiing, but figuratively. And we had a church split in one of our churches, and I wasn't doing so well. Emotionally draining, I had stomach aches for months. And my wife said, Lord, I want to help my husband because he is not doing it. He's fallen, and I want to help pick him up. That's why she started turkey hunting, by the way. And she said, I want to go hunting with you, but I want to learn to shoot and she did that to help me get back on track of something to invest in her. That's why she started, to help pick me up. She's pretty good at it, by the way. She's probably better than you. But that's why she started. Go navigate the seasons of life together. There's the passing of time, chronos. There's the buying up of time, like an opportunity. Then there's the seasons of life that you go through as a married couple. There was our engineering days and living in Alaska days, then Bible college days. We determined to grow together, and we talked about that last night as I shared Scripture with her in class, and we grew together. Then there's the child-raising years, the little kids, and then the the annoying kid age, and that kind of goes on a long time. <laughs> Just different phases of that. And there are phases of life, and you go through them together. And so there's the empty nester phase, and as she homeschooled our kids, invested in them. She said, I don't know what I'm going to do because I, I poured my life into my kids. I said, I don't either, but we're in it together. That's all you have to tell them. They want to know you know and you care, and you don't need an answer yet. Remember, we're fixers. You don't have to fix it yet. God will figure this out, and so He did. We navigated her menopause together, and you will too, or you're right in the middle of it. <laughs> we're way beyond wanting pickles like when they're pregnant. This is way beyond that. 
hot and cold flash. I mean, she's like this, and she was like this. She'd get a migraine that lasts for days. She has a strong resistance to pain, like her son. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But she hurt. And getting up early in the morning would trigger us. So we went turkey hunting in the afternoon because early morning would trigger her migraines. And I didn't know what to do. She said, just read to me. I want to hear your voice. I said, okay. So I just read something. She laid on the couch. The windows were closed. It was dark. His light was hurtful. And I just read. She tells me I read for seven hours. I don't remember that, but that's what she said. For seven hours, she listened to my voice. And if you read the Song of Solomon... It talks about loving everything about them, even the sound of their voice. I love her text, but the sound of her voice still makes my heart flutter. And so we navigated menopause together. A change in job or ministry, we moved to Ankeny from pastoring. I became the state rep, and a big shift for her from mentoring young ladies and working with children and she just plugged into what we do, visiting churches, and she worked at the bookstore for a while. And about two years in, she said, Tim, I love what we do, but I miss investing in uh, my ladies and the kids. I said, I know. And two weeks, Dr. Tillerson called and said, Sandy, we need a mom with ministry experience to be the dean of women. She says, I wonder who I could recommend. <laughs> he said, I'm looking for you. And so she became the dean of women, and God provided through the aging of life, be creative, try something new. It's why we kayak, it's why we bike. She now is hooked on fishing in Minnesota in the fall. Hey, we buy trout stamps. She can't wait to go back. Number five, make decisions together. No longer free to make them without her. That's called singleness. You consult her, you need her. I've done that before, and it's been a terrible mistake. And since then, I've learned we have, I have like the coolest garage in the world. It's a double and a single. The single's 50 feet deep. And you're coveting, and you should. I, I keep my, my, my camping stuff and my shop and our kayaks, and she wanted that for me. That's why we have it. All she wanted was a garbage drawer and a little bit bigger foyer. And we found a house by God's grace. This said, but we watched out for each other and made a decision together. I bought a dog once, and I said, hey, honey, I need to... It was a guilt buy, you know. And it ruined my rifle scope, and that was the end of it. We brought it back. Not the end of the dog. No, no. The end of owning the dog. We brought it back. The owners believed that the dog was certifiably insane. They gave us our money back. Then I bought a car. We needed a second car. Couldn't afford it. And she said, if you want to, you can, which doesn't mean it's a good idea. That's not her permission. <laughs> That's letting you lead and letting you fall. She really is a big believer in that. And so I bought the car with money we didn't have, and it cost more to fix it than to own it, so I sold it. It was a Plymouth Horizon. Oh, I'm so embarrassed to say that. Don't even look them up. Oh, it's not as bad as a Gremlin, not as bad as a Pacer, but kind of that same caliber. She said, if you want to, you can, and that means don't do it. I've learned. 
grow spiritually together. And, and that could mean praying together, reading the Bible together, but way more than that is you walk through life, talk about God everywhere you go. We do that. Every conversation has something to do with God, His Word, and an application to life. She's really good at that. So we mingle that in everything that we do, grow spiritually together, apply the Word of God to life everywhere you go. And then do ministry together. Do ministry together. As much as you can. Now, some of us have stuff that only we can do, and it doesn't involve that, but we can do more. And we did premier's counseling together. We did evangelistic Bible studies together. We brought our kids with us. We went to events and funerals and hospitals and talked about bringing your children. Um, we pop into churches. My wife is with me. It's rare that she's not. And we're teaching a generation of young people do ministry together as much as you can and invest the next generation. That's something what a companion looks like. So men, by the grace of God, we can do this. It takes work, have to be saved and submissive to the Spirit and pray like crazy that God would help us to be the men that we need to be. But God, we need godly marriages with wives that are covenant, our companions for life. And teach that to our children and a generation desperately in need of seeing what a marriage should look like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for these men. Father, help us to be, by your grace and the power of the cross, men who love our wives like Christ loved the church, by covenant and by companionship, make a difference in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.